Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, we'll be looking at the last four verses, verses 20 through 23. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using? according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. go before the Lord once again in prayer. Father, as we continue to make our way through the book of Colossians and even come to this particular passage, the conclusion of a great exhortation not to follow the ways of the world. Lord, how we do plead with you that you would strengthen us, that we might stand as there is such a great pressure on us to compromise Help us, O Lord, as we consider uh, Paul's uh, last argument on this particular topic and theme. Help us, O Lord, to to be strengthened and to uh, stand firm for the sake of the glory of your name. Strengthen us, O Lord, even through the preaching of your word. How we do ask it in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In life, there are certain things that don't make sense for certain people. They're, they're so odd that if you were to see it, you would, you'd immediately question what kind of uh, person is actually doing these sorts of things. An example would be something like a, if you were to see a doctor in a high school classroom taking a remedial math course. That would uh, not really make any sense, and it would probably not give you a lot of confidence if you had to see that doctor, if he can't even uh, pass a remedial high school math course. Or if you think of another example, would be something like some a wealthy person, perhaps a billionaire, applying for welfare, something like that. It just it just wouldn't make sense. And if you were to see someone in that situation, you would immediately say, you know, I I don't actually think that you're a billionaire, or I don't actually think that you're a doctor. If you were, there would be no reason for you to be doing these kinds of things. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, here at the Apostle Paul, in as I mentioned in the prayers, this is really the conclusion of this great exhortation not to follow the ways of the world. He gives another example. If you have died with Christ from the ways of the world, why, as though living in it, do you submit to regulations? Here is another very strange example. You are one who's died with Christ. That death means that you have died to the ways of the world. Why is it that you continue to live in them? Don't you know that it's not fitting for you to do this? It would be like a doctor trying to take a remedial math course. It just doesn't make any sense. And this is the argument 
that the Apostle Paul gives here. This is, again, the concluding argument, the reason why you are not to follow the ways of the world. Now, you'll notice here that the main uh, thrust of the argument of the Apostle Paul has to do with the doctrine of union with Christ. He has alluded to this in a number of places in his letter already, but here as the crowning of his argument, you have died with Christ. His death is your death. Therefore, do not follow the ways of the world. Now, this passage is a bit of a, a transition point in, in the letter to the Colossians. As the Apostle Paul really Really, the rest of the letter is just an application of the doctrine of union with Christ. So he begins here by saying, if you've died with Christ, certain things are not appropriate for you to do. Certain things are not appropriate for you to be persuaded by. And then in chapter 3, he begins, if you have been raised with Christ, so if you've died with him, there's certain things that are true. Then in chapter 3, if you've been raised with him, then there are certain ways that you must live. And that becomes then the theme of the rest of the letter. So there is the death with uh, with Christ, which we'll look at this week, and then life with Christ. And this is all part of the doctrine of union. Part of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ is we have his death and we have his life. And so what the Apostle Paul here is teaching is that union with Christ in his death means death to the ways of the world. That's what it means. There can be uh, no way in which we can say that we've died with Christ and yet then follow the ways of the world. Christ's death means death to the ways of the world. Now, we'll look at this uh, passage just under two headings here this evening. First, just in verse 20, uh, that, that, which is basically the main idea. Everything else is really supporting this main idea, which is that union with Christ means death to the world. Then, in verses 21 through 23, we'll look at what the ways of the world look like. What is it that we're actually supposed to stay away from? So, Paul gives um, the principle what we are to do, and then a description of, of the ways of the world, saying that these these things are, are useless. So look with me again then at verse 20 as we consider a union with Christ. This, it's, it's really impossible to uh, overstate the importance of the doctrine of union with Christ, and particularly in the letters of, of Paul. This is the constant theme in all of his letters. You think of um, you th- think of a very stark example is in in First Corinthians chapter one, where the apostle Paul begins to deal with the doctrine of division. Now, if you think, how would you address the doctrine of division? Well, the way the apostle Paul does it is he says, "Well, is Christ divided? You've been united with the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ isn't divided. Therefore, you can't be divided." For him, the do- the doctrine of union with Christ is so multifaceted that it it affects every part of the Christian life, and he's already used this doctrine a number of times in this letter, as I mentioned. Towards the end of chapter 1, he says that he himself is filling up the things which are lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That is to say, I have union with Christ in the sufferings, and I now am suffering with the Lord Jesus Christ as I suffer in my ministry. Or think of the way he used it earlier in chapter 2, where he said, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, and you have been filled in him. You have a union with Christ, even in Christ receiving the fullness of God. Or even just a bit later, he says, you have died with Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and now you've been raised with him again. This is the thing, the theme that pulls all the way through all of Paul's letters. It is really foundational to the theology of the Apostle Paul. If you are a Christian, that means you are united to Christ. And even when we call you a Christian, you bear his name. You, you bear the name of the Christ whom you serve. You have been united to him. Now, That's the importance of the doctrine of union with Christ. What does it mean when we say that you have died with Christ? What does that actually 
mean? Well, it means a number of things. That when it's a reference to Christ's death on the cross, and that in some way, this death becomes your death. It is your death and has been applied to you. Now, now that means, uh, on the one hand, that uh, Christ has received the imputation of, through imputation, he's received your sins. He's died the death that you deserve to die. That's part of what it means, but it means actually even more than that. Primarily, most fundamentally, it means that the Lord Jesus Christ, as our covenant head, it really has to do with, with the, the, the doctrine of the covenant, as our covenant head, he has died, and because of our union with him in covenant, that death becomes our death. The same thing is true, for instance, with Adam. His one act of sin means all of us have committed the act and all of us receive the judicial condemnation. With the Lord Jesus Christ, the same is true, but rather than it leading to curse, it leads to blessing. With the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death is our death and his life is our life. He is the covenant head over us. And so what happens to him must happen to us. And what the Apostle Paul uh, then says is, is that part of Christ's death, now there are a number of things we could say about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but part of it is that his death was a dying to the ways of the world. And because his death was a dying to the ways of the world, that means that also your uh, death in the Lord Jesus Christ is also dying to the ways of the world. Think of the way that the Apostle Paul says it in Galatians chapter 6 where he says, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to me and me to the world. Now, he, he's not died a death of crucifixion, but what is he saying? That the Lord Jesus Christ, his death was a crucifixion to the, to the world, and I, being united to him, have that death, and I have therefore been crucified to the world, which means that the world is now dead to me. The world is dead to me. That is what, the, that is what happened when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. He died to sin that he might live to God. And so here the Apostle Paul specifically says that the death is to the basic principles of the world. You've died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. Now, what does it mean when we speak of the basic principles of the world? Well, basically, it's the entire world system that is contrary uh, to God. It represents the old world. The old world which is passing away with all of its sin and corruption. That is the way, uh, the ways of the world that the Apostle Paul is referring to. And when the Lord Jesus Christ died, he died to that world. He bore, when he was incarnate, he bore the body of the old world, but he died to it. And when he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead in such a way that he now participates, not in the old world, but in the new this is why when the Apostle Paul goes on in Colossians 3 to speak of union with Christ and his resurrection, he says, seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated. This is, this is the, the whole contrast. There's the old world. Christ's death is a doing away with that world. It is, it is a, com a complete severing of it. And the resurrection is a now a participation in the new life which is to come. Now, if you have been then united with the Lord Jesus Christ in that death where there is a complete severance from the old world, then surely it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to continue to live as if you are really living in the old world. That's the whole point of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a doing away 
with those things. If these things are true, then this other thing cannot be true of you. And now notice as well that that the Apostle Paul here is speaking of these sort of worldly commands. That if if you've died with the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing, no sort of temptation, no sort of statement to worldview, no sort of of uh, doctrine that the world can teach you that you can now say, you know what, I think that is appropriate for me to follow as a Christian. You have died to those things and the world has died to you. And that's the question that the Apostle Paul says, how is it that you can subject yourself to regulations that only come from the world? They're just a, a representation of the doctrine and teachings of the world. So think about this, brothers and sisters, as you think about who you are in Christ, as you think about all the very real temptations that you're facing uh, to give up on, on Christianity. Think about this. You have died to this world, and you are now new creatures in Christ. You are participants in the new heavens and the new earth. You are seated with the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. Your citizenship is even now in heaven. It just doesn't make any sense to follow the ways of the world. What could they possibly offer you? Everything just leads straight to death. It's a world of corruption that leads from death to death. And so the Apostle Paul then, after giving this great exhortation, goes on to describe in a number of ways uh, what the ways of the world are. What is it that you are uh, to stay away from? He says, you know, you're submitting yourself to regulations. He gives an example of what these things are. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Now, this is the first of really five things that the Apostle Paul says with relation to what the world is. And the first is just a series of regulations and commands. Now, a lot of these we've actually touched on in verse 16, so I'm not going to go over them um, in a lot of detail. It's just important to see that that um, probably these, these regulations in verse 21 are the same sorts of things that he's dealt with in verse 16. Now, they have to do with, with ceremonial cleanliness uh, before the Lord particularly things related to what we eat, what we drink, that sort of thing related to Jewish practices. And all these things have been fulfilled in Christ. We are cleansed in Christ and there's no need uh, for these things. What's interesting, though, is that by linking these things, by linking verse uh, 21 and particularly its relationship to the, the basic principles of the world with verse 16, we see that even in some ways the Old Testament practices really belong to the old world. They were, they were things which pointed forward in some way to the realities to come of a new heavens and a new earth, but they didn't participate in them in the same way that we participate in them. And because of that, even they must pass away. Though they were good in their own context, though they were sufficient for the saints in the Old Testament to build up their faith and give them a longing for uh, the coming of the Messiah, still they were a part of the old world. They looked forward to something that they did not in themselves participate in. And the Apostle Paul says, there's no reason to submit to these things. Now, the second thing that he says with regard to these things is he says, all these things perish with the using. That is, they, they're consumed when they're used. And this is part of the Apostle Paul's argument as to why these things just simply don't matter. Uh, these things are used up. They're perishable. Uh, it's not to say that they're inherently bad because of that, but it does betray the fact that they are not permanent and therefore a part of the old world to which you have died. They're simply just they're simply just not important. 
these the the you know the the, the he's saying you know these people who are upsetting your minds by trying to get you to submit to all these things, don't you realize that they're they're trying to get you to submit to these things as if they're like of this great moment and important, but they're it's just food. It just it just doesn't matter one way or another what you do with it, uh, eat it or you know if you don't want to don't, but it simply is something that is consumed up and it is. Uh, it is of no moment in the kingdom of God. This is the same sort of argument that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 14. He says, you know, the kingdom of God, it's not about food and drink. It's not of food and drink, but it's about righteousness and sanctification in the Lord. It's not about these these small momentary things that are, are perishable. It's about the things which last that pertain to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this uh, brings with it that, I mean, you know, we're probably not tempted in exactly the same way here in our own lives. But it is an important thing to recognize that very often uh, one of the characteristics of the ways of the world is that they tend to major on the minors, things which don't matter. They want you to see things as extraordinary important that really um, just don't matter that much. Um, I remember one time talking with a, uh, a person in, in China when we were there and trying to get him to see um, the truth of the, of the gospel, and he was so concerned about uh, the rights of um, animals, including bugs, you know, that we don't kill bugs, that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's, there, there may be something too, you know, like not going around and just killing things for no reason, but the life of a bug is just, is just not that, you know, not that important. It just doesn't carry a lot of weight and it wouldn't, it shouldn't be a reason that you would, uh, reject or receive the truth of the gospel. It's majoring, uh, on a minor. And this is very often the way the world works. It, it can't see clearly about these sorts of things. And so there is a majoring uh, on the minors. And that's part of Christian discernment is to recognize the things which the Lord cares about more than anything else and to walk in those particular ways, the things which he has actually said are pleasing to him. And so that's the second thing that the, that the Apostle Paul says about the ways of the world. The third is that they are according to the commandments and doctrines of men. They're according to the commandments and doctrines of men. This is, of course, all the world can offer. They have no even concept of the, the, the idea of revelation. There's nothing outside of the world that could be speaking to us. Therefore, anything that we're going to say can only come from uh, man. But this is, of course, not sufficient for us. We believe that God has, in fact, spoken to us in the Bible. He does reveal himself to us, and anything that is not in accordance with the word of God in terms of something we believe in terms of faith and practice must be false. It must be, and it's not sufficient for it to be uh, of any weight with us. It cannot be uh, used against us to say it's something that we must submit to. It is simply the commandments and doctrines of men. It's one of the, the primary ways that, they, that the Bible can speak of something which is false with regard to religion. If it comes from man, then it's not right. If it has not, no more authority than man, then it's not right. Even what I say, I'm a man, I'm speaking, but if I don't say it in accordance with the word of God, then it is of no weight or moment. This is actually probably an allusion to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, where, uh, the, where the prophet Isaiah is uh, condemning the people uh, of God for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Who they're trying to persuade uh, people of things which have no weight from the scriptures. It's another uh, passage which the Lord Jesus Christ Himself 
uh, picked up on and used against the Pharisees in the controversy with the washing of hands. You know, they say, why, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? And he, and he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? They, these, people may, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, this, is, this has a number of important implications. I do want to, to speak just to just a couple of them before, uh, before we move on. The first is that this applies particularly to, to worship. Uh, that in worship, we must do the things which God has commanded. There are really only two kinds of things that can be done in worship. There are the things which come from God, and there are the things which come from men. We only do the things which come from God. There is a way of thinking about worship that says that if God has not prohibited something in the, in the Bible, in terms of a practice in worship, then we can do it. We can, we can, we can do those particular things. But that is, that is very different from what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying and what the prophet Isaiah said so many years ago. It's not just that we can't find anything with this particular practice, which the word of God speaks to. It is, does the practice come from God? Does it have a divine origin and a divine sanction? If it does, then we do it. If it does not, then it is only a commandment of men and therefore is not something that we ought to do in worship. Worship must always be done in accordance with the word of God. If you think of even what idolatry is, I think even the, the definition of idolatry ought to exclude all things that don't come from God. Idolatry is simply anything which is man-made and using that man-made thing in worship. Now, it doesn't matter if that thing is actually made into some, some visible thing that you can see. If it's a practice which comes only from man, though it's not prohibited by God directly in terms of a particular practice, it is an idol. It's something that has been created by man. The true way to worship God is to worship him in accordance with the word of God. And this is why this, this principle, which is, is believed by all Reformed churches, this is the reason why when you go to other Reformed churches, they all look actually very, very similar. The reason is because they're all doing the things which God has commanded, and they don't believe that you can do uh, anything else. Our worship is only according uh, to the Bible. It is a rigorous application of the doctrine of sola scriptura to the practice of worship. If you want to know what we are to do, the question to ask is, show me in the Bible where it is that we do that particular thing. And even if you think uh, just about the wisdom of the world more generally, why is it that the ways of the world are weak? Again, it's because their commandments come only from, uh, their commandments only come from man. And so when you are tempted, uh, when the world presses in on you, this is, a good, again, a good thing to remember. You are believing the religion which comes from God himself. And whatever the world would t tell you about the things which they say are wrong, the highest they can go in their authority is themselves. They can say, you know, this or that is immoral, it's wrong. Well, you know, you may say so, but God himself has spoken on the matter and he's very, very clear on it. This is this is the authority. This is the this is what we are to listen to. The ways of the world do not rise in authority beyond the commandments of men. Now, the fourth thing that the apostle Paul says in the beginning of verse twenty-three 
is that these things, the ways of the world, do have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. Now, it's an important thing for us to, to recognize. We don't want to make light of the very real temptation and the very real uh, pressure that's on us to, to, uh, to turn away from the faith. The Apostle Paul recognizes the things that the world is offering, they're wrong, they deal with things that are just perishable, they are only with regard to the commandments of men. They have no divine authority. And yet, he does recognize and point out, they do have an outward appearance of wisdom. And that's, I think, what makes these things so tempting. They are half-truths spoken. If you remember the, the sermons on Genesis chapter 3, it's the same thing that the snake did with Eve. He fed her a bunch of half-truths that appeared to be good. You'll be like God. It'll be great. This thing will make you wise. And Eve believes that it will make her wise. And they uh, become like God in a sense, but it leads to their uh, being expelled from the garden, not in the way that they uh, were looking for. And this is uh, exactly the way that the world works. There are half-truths that are fed to us, and we are told that we must give in to them, or else we are denying something that all people hold to be true. A number of examples that are, are very common today. The issue of sexual ethics um, is a is a very very important one. It's it's probably the most prominent. It's it's just it's so militant today. Um, but here we are told that we are immoral if we oppose uh, the new sexual ethics with homosexuality, transgenderism, and whatever else. We are told that it, it, to do so would be a denial of civil rights. Now, of course, we believe that civil rights are right and good. We ought not to discriminate against people based on uh, their age or gender or color or whatever. Um, you know, we don't, we, we want to uphold the civil rights of people and wherever it's appropriate, but civil rights has nothing to do with something that's an ethical or moral question. Is it, you know, we don't, we don't grant civil rights to thieves or murderers or anything else because it's a, it's a moral issue. And this is where there is just this, this half truth or think of the way abortion is defended today. Probably not even probably certainly um, the the worst and grossest example in our day of the violation of the Sixth Commandment is we have millions and millions of people uh, who are dying uh, from uh, abortion. And we are told that to oppose abortion would be to oppose women's health. Um, it is, you know, who, who wouldn't be for women's health? Of course, you know, all of us would say we're for women's health. And so there is this appearance of wisdom. And we are told we're not being moral when we do these things. But none of those sort of arguments uh, land any sort of ground. There is an appearance of wisdom, but it is not actual wisdom. And so it's something that we must always be on guard against. We recognize that there, we, we don't expect the ways of the world to have no sort of arguments to put on, on its own side, but we do expect it to be half-truths. And that's why we must always be on our guard. Uh, there will be, you know, today it's, it's uh, sexual ethics and abortion. Tomorrow it could be any number of things, but we need to be ready grounded in the word of God, to recognize half-truths for what they are and to be able to understand the way things are being argued and to, and, uh, to look at it from a biblical perspective and to reject all false arguments. Now, the, the three particular areas that the Apostle Paul is saying in particular that the world appears to be wise is with regard to self-imposed worship, false humility, and neglect of the body. Now, with will worship... This would be any kind of worship, again, that comes from man. So again, with, with worship, we, we don't worship 
according to the doctrines and commandments of men. It's only according to the word of God. It's not enough to say that I can't find any anywhere where the Bible uh, says we should not do this or that strange practice. It is if it comes from man, then it is a self-imposed will worship. And we don't do and we don't do that. Now, so that's been discussed. False humility, if you remember, that was discussed some uh, last week. False humility is a false putting yourself down in the presence of others in order to appear to be greater in their eyes, you know, to be praised for being humble, uh, that sort of thing. I don't want to spend too much time on those two, but the third is something we haven't talked about as much. Neglect of the body. Neglect of the body. So there is an appearance of wisdom with false humility, because it appears to be true humility. There is an appearance of wisdom with will worship. Um, you know, they, they, you know, they can speak to all these practices which appear to have some sort of wisdom in worship. But the third is neglect of the body. This appears to have a wisdom to it. The reason for the wisdom, the reason for the draw is if I deny myself certain things, then I won't want those things anymore. So if I deny myself things that I know to be sinful, of course, denying yourself sinful things is a good thing. Uh, But if I deny myself excessively, then I can purge the body of all its need uh, for various things. Um, It's very much the thinking of the monastery. That if I just separate myself from the world, the world and its temptations will not encroach into my life anymore. That's, that's what I need is a radical separation and a, a radical beating of the body um, in order to beat it into submission. Um, this is an, a, a thing which very interestingly the Apostle Paul warns against. There are some sections within Christianity that are more that are known mostly for the things that they cannot, excuse me, for the things that they cannot do. Um, they, there are certain groups that, you know, if you think you hear these groups and you think, oh, well, that's the group that can't do, uh, this or that. Now, of course, there are things that Christians must not do, but we are never to be defined by the things that we restrict and that we tell people that we cannot do. And if we are over strict on things, we may think that that is a benefit to us. It appears to be wise. We're moving further away from sin, but very often the problem is if we're over strict, we put an undue burden on ourselves that we cannot sustain forever. And at some point when that falls, we can actually be led into even much, much worse sins. The commandments of God are not burdensome to us. If we make them overly burdensome, at some point, we won't be able to bear it and we'll be led away into even worse sins. And so this is actually something that the Apostle Paul warns against. He warns against an overly strict neglect of the body. So an example of the way this could work out, um, I think there's a probably a greater temptation for it to work out in this area um, in our situation today just because of the way things are going, uh, particularly with the Lord's Day. Uh, are there things that we are not to do on the Lord's Day? Of course, there are lots of things that we are not to do uh, on the Lord's Day. But the things that we do not do on the Lord's Day are not the definition of the Lord's Day. They're not the, the main thrust of why we keep the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is not about the things that we don't do. It's rather about the things that we do. So we can say, you know, is it is it wrong to work on the Sabbath? Of course it's wrong to work on the Sabbath. It's not it's not a good thing to work on the Sabbath. It's not even a good thing to 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 do recreational activities on the Sabbath. We we put those things away. But that's not the focus of the day. And we we need not to be overly strict with those sorts of things in sort of a um, a minute uh, looking for every single detail and, you know, challenging others, that sort of thing, that will only lead to problems. What is the purpose of the Lord's Day? 
The purpose of the Lord's Day is to worship the Lord. We make time for worship. That's, that's what it is. It's just that we love our God, and he's commanded us to spend time in worship. And so it's not to be a burden to us. And if we ever find ourselves being overly exacting in details, it, will, it can lead to problems in our lives. It will lead to burnout, and then we may give up the whole doctrine itself and go in the complete opposite direction. So these are the things. They appear to be wise. The last thing that the Apostle Paul says is that they actually do nothing to help us. So remember what these, these, uh, what these five uh, things are. First, there is, there is the, these various commands not to handle, to eat, to touch. There are uh, the ways in which the, the ways the world have no bearing on our lives are just perishable things. They're only according to the commandments of men. The third thing, the fourth thing, they appear to be wise. But the fifth thing, they can't help us. They, do, they don't give us any advantage. And this is uh, exactly what happens if you think of the life of, of the monks. You know, there's one thing that, that Calvin said in the time of the Reformation, it's really been true all throughout the ages, is that there is really actually a lot of sin in the monasteries. There always has been, and there always will be. That sort of action, it appears to be wise, but it does not lead to holiness. It cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh. These things which appear to be wise, the commandments of men, this false sort of humility, this giving up and neglect of the body, it does not lead to any kind of benefit in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And even these things, Satan will use these things to make you overly strict at one time in order to break you later. It's very a, a very subtle thing. Nothing that the world offers can help you. These are all empty promises from Satan, though outwardly they may look like uh, you know those who are, are monks appear to many people to be living the height uh, of a sanctified life, but it is simply not true. So this is the ways of the world that we are to, to uh, reject and spurn. So if we were to ask, what is it that you have in Christ? Well, in this passage, the thing that you have in Christ is death. But it's death that's not a negative thing. It is a death from all these things. All these things are useless. They have no benefit to you whatsoever. They only come from man. They're perishable. And you've died to them. You, you have no relationship to them anymore. You've been liberated from them. They have no hold on you. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ died to sin, that he might live to God, so you've died to the ways of the world that you might live to God yourself. This is why the Apostle Paul says, do not, be trans, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Do not live in such a way that you become like the examples I gave in the illustration, in the, in the opening illustration. Do not be like a doctor taking remedial math courses or like a billionaire applying for welfare. Recognize what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ, a participation even now in the new creation. And do not then submit yourself to things which are only the commandments of men, are perishable, doomed to be destroyed with the destruction of this world. All things are yours. Do not go run after the things which are nothing and profitless. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we recognize the, the reality of the temptation. We recognize that uh, very often there are ideas that come our way. There are temptations that come our way. 
There are arguments that come our way that have an outward appearance of wisdom. And we, we recognize, Lord, that this is a, a difficult thing for us. We recognize, O oh Lord, that, that the temptations are very real. We recognize as well, Lord, that we are weak. We recognize that we often cannot stand on our own, that we are very quick to fall. We're very slow of heart to believe the things that we ought to believe. We are not prepared enough for the temptations that we have. And so, Lord, recognizing all these things, we plead with you to help us to stand. We plead with you, O Lord, to confirm us in the faith. We, pre- we plead with you, O Lord, to implant your word deep in our hearts that we might be given wisdom to see through these various things and to simply hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom all of your fullness dwells bodily and we are filled in him. Give us, Lord, the grace to do this, to stand firm and not to be blown about by every wind of doctrine, but to be firmly planted in your church like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. That's not like a, a withering twig that is blown here and about by the wind. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would do this for the sake of the glory of your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.